A newspaper columnist reached out to me a while back after noticing a few of my tweets about the still mysterious condition that was coming to be known as long COVID. The columnist was curious if other medical professionals shared my skepticism of the narrative emerging in news stories. I'm more terrified of this syndrome than I am of death, this correspondent shared with me. That's not an isolated perspective. What media stories about long COVID and the people who call themselves long haulers describe is frightening. But I also worry that the narrative about a new chronic disease caused by a mild infection with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is getting ahead of the evidence. Clinicians often dismiss the symptoms of long COVID as psychosomatic. This approach has led to anger over medical gaslighting where patients' reports of physiological suffering are not construed as credible, and fear that the medical profession is failing to recognize it as a serious threat. When clinicians default to psychosomatic reasons for long COVID at this stage, before they have scientific evidence to support that conclusion, and before researchers have explored biological explanations, it seems that they're valuing their own clinical hunches more highly than they value science. That was critical care physician Adam Gaffney reading from his first opinion, we need to start thinking more critically and speaking more cautiously about long COVID. And philosopher Diane O'Leary reading from hers called Needed for Long COVID, a less authoritarian approach to understanding treatment. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, we understand that the health of people and the health of the planet are deeply interconnected. We recognize that integrating sustainability into our business will limit our impact on the environment and help us realize our vision of a world where access to life-changing therapies transforms human health. Learn how we are seizing sustainability at Cytiva.com slash sustainability. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash sustainability. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Diane and Adam. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. The concept of long COVID is a murky one, uh, which I guess makes it a perfect uh, choice for a first opinion podcast conversation. A good place to start, maybe the best place to start really, is clarifying for listeners what long COVID is or might be. Adam, your essay was published about a month before Diane's, so I'm giving you first dibs on that. Sure. Um, I think this is a critical question because I think that what gets discussed um, as long COVID um, in the media um, is, in fact, many different things, and it conflates different categories. And I think it's important to emphasize that there is no question that 
COVID-19 can have serious long-term sequelae. COVID-19 can have a mild form that's more like a cold or a flu-like syndrome. It can be more severe and cause pneumonia. And it can result in something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, a severe type of pneumonia affecting both lungs, causing critical illness, requiring intubation. And many of those patients see a wide variety of other organ damage as well. And Diane, what's your working definition of long COVID? Generally, I, uh, I've i been comfortable with the distinctions that are drawn in the Greenhaug and colleagues article in the BMJ. So that was the first um, practice pointers for uh, clinical management of long COVID in primary care. And uh, right at the beginning there, it's, it's quite informal, but right at the beginning there, they distinguish a post-ICU kind of set of problems that we're generally familiar with um, from, I think, they do these out of order, but a second group would be the patients who have problems resulting from clear organ damage that occurred during acute infection, right? And then the third group would be what she characterizes just as the patients who have nonspecific symptoms, generally characterized by problems with fatigue and breathing issues, but, you know, a gazillion other kinds of symptoms. So I think at this point in the media, debate about long COVID really centers on this third group um, or patients who have often have milder initial illness, often were younger, often were healthier when they uh, had COVID and then end up having long-term problems that are changeable and nonspecific. And um, I think that's what people are generally debating. So that's the article. The article you were describing was one mainly aimed at physicians in the British Medical Journal. I think the one that really brought this to attention was Ed Yong's article in The Atlantic in August. Um, he, his descriptions and descriptions of others about co- long COVID are pretty grim. Unremitting fatigue, weakness, brain fog, gastrointestinal problems, headaches, insomnia. It's been referred to, and I'm quoting here, as a dementor sucking my soul, living death, and an internal prison. Boy, that's pretty compelling language for kind of a, a, as I said in the beginning, a murky disease. What's been learned about long COVID since Ed wrote back in August? Anything? Much? A little? I think it's hard to summarize that succinctly, but I, but I, I want to say a couple of, of things in response to what you're saying, which is, I mean, first off, I think that One way to think of this, and one way to sort of think about the controversy here is, are we thinking of this more as the aftermath of a car accident, right? Where the damage is real, where the damage can be variable depending on the severity of the car accident. And this is the the reality, the lived reality of people after car accidents is that some symptoms linger and some damage lingers and some things never get better and some things do. Or or are we thinking of this as as a new disease that has not really been described before. Um, you know, when you mentioned the Ed Young article, there has been a lot of studies since then. There have been a lot of studies documenting um, symptoms that persist, um, even among people with mild infection, what we call mild infections. Um, and I think there's some sort of discussion about how to interpret that, th- th- those articles. And, you know, one of the things that sort of alerted me to the fact that, well, maybe this is a little more complicated than, than is being described in Ed Young's article is, is the fact that in Ed Young's article itself, he mentions sort of offhandedly 
oh, well, in this one cohort of people with this syndrome um, that has been studied, um, two thirds had negative serologies, right? So serology is blood tests that show um, that can be a marker of infection. But the fact that that was negative in, in two, two thirds to me made me at least think this may be a little more complicated and, and worthy of a little more discussion. The point is, is not about is this real, is this biological? It's what is the etiology? Is it a new chronic disease? And the reason why that matters is because it has a huge impact on, on, on the question of treatment and the likelihood of finding a quote-unquote cure um, or whether rehabilitation support and, tr and treatment of any or organ damages that may exist is going to be the main way we can help these patients. So it seems helpful um, in this discussion to clarify that what when you say car accident, um, sounds like that's kind of a euphemism. What you're saying is it could be that there's a long-term disease like an autoimmune disease arising after infection, or it could be psychosomatic. I'm comfortable with that language. It seems like that's really what we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I don't agree with a perspective that sort of casts um, neatly and cleanly um, biological and psychosocial or psychosomatic phenomenon um, as, as clearly separate. Um, I think they are very intertwined. Psychosocial factors can influence biological processes, what we call biological processes, you know, molecules and chemistry in the brain or whatever you want to call it. And those processes can in turn have effects on our psychological states. Um, and the reality is, is that that I think is what makes, you know, medicine so complicated. It's it's not like treating a robot where there's a wire that goes from point A to point B. And if that wire gets cut, then there's a problem. You know, I've had patients with severe COVID-19 who are on the verge, on the brink of being intubated, let's say. Um, and they actually don't feel shortness of breath, right? And that's fascinating. And we can talk about why that might be in the physiology. Um, but for whatever reason, despite having incredibly sick lungs at that moment, at a particular moment, they are not experiencing shortness of breath. Um, on the other hand, I have experienced shortness of breath um, just from anxiety, pure anxiety. As far as I know, I don't have lung disease. I have experienced that. So here you have me with as far as I know, no decrement in lung function without shortness of with shortness of breath because I'm feeling anxious. And we have a patient who who has life-threatening lung disease and does not feel shortness of breath. And I'm not trying to make anything, I'm not making a case that that that's about long COVID. I'm not making any specific point other than a very generic one, which is that the symptoms we experience as human beings are profoundly complicated and produced by a multitude of factors. Um, and I think that's not gaslighting. Um, that's just acknowledging our complexity uh, as human beings. I think it's important to bracket that issue of gaslighting for later, uh, how we define that and how that's significant. So let me just set that aside. I, I do want to say that uh, I entirely agree with uh, everything you've said about the way that mind and body interact and the unity of mind and body and all of those things. I totally agree. And we are on the same page on all of that. What I'm suggesting is that these things in no way imply that we should be incautious about the question of the presence of disease. Um, these things don't in any way imply that we can't make an error at this line. So if you have a patient who suffers from cancer and you decide, well, you're having a, you just got fired, your, your marriage is breaking up, I think this is a psychosocial problem and you manage that uh, with mental health support, you know, the patient will uh, suffer and maybe die. 
the fact that, you know, it's difficult to tell, the fact that it's all biological in the end, the fact that mind and body interact, none of this suggests that we shouldn't be extremely cautious about the question of whether there is disease there. So this would be the my suggestion for long COVID. Well, and I agree with, I don't disagree with anything you said. There's no question about that from a clinical perspective, that we should be very um, careful and thoughtful about um, um, evaluation. And everyone, whether it's long COVID, short COVID, or anything in between, um, should have diligent, thoughtful, rigorous um, medical evaluation, referrals um, to specialists when things are unclear, and clinically indicated tests. That's not uh, in question. But at the same time, I think we should acknowledge as a society to a greater extent than we currently do, that psychological suffering, psychological anguish can in fact produce very real, harmful, hurtful physical symptoms, and whether that's pain or shortness of breath or other things, I, I think we should acknowledge that more as a society. And I think we don't. I think right now we sort of think of, well, that's real and that's not real. And I, and, and I, don't, I, I don't view it that way. I think everyday people now have taken stock of that and accept it. Um, and I don't dispute that that's just as real. The thing is that recognizing that, and, and I really thought your article was beautifully written about the anguish that we all feel at this time and, and the serious mental health challenges that we all face. It's really important to recognize that. And of course, those kinds of things can cause symptoms. But then you have a great deal of work to do to get from that to therefore long COVID is psychosomatic. There, all of the work is in that step, right? That's where we need, you know, you need evidence, you need conversations about safety, you need that kind of thing. So it feels like we're edging toward a point that um, I think, Diane, you made in your, in your essay. You mentioned the standoff forming between the public and the medical profession. I think that's kind of where we're tilting toward here. Can you describe what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I think that this is where the word gaslighting um, becomes useful. I mean, before COVID, before the pandemic, the public and the media were gearing up with um, debate and frustration and concern about this idea of gaslighting, particularly with women. Um, and you were seeing it in all kinds of media outlets and you were seeing patient organizations who were separately concerned with this coming together in kind of a unified way unifying with people who do women's health. It was kind of coming to a head. But from my perspective, this is what I do. Of course, I'm watching it very closely. Um, and then COVID and then psh, all that was gone for a long time, right? So hold on for a second. Can you tell, you know, I've always been confused by the term gaslighting. What what does it mean here? Yeah, I, I think this is really important because I think there's a real misunderstanding about that um, in the way that gaslighting was presented in, in your article. Adam, I think was a very accurate perspective on the way clinicians see this debate about gaslighting, it's very confrontational, that debate in the public, and it's hard for clinicians, right? You suggested that clinicians' decisions are derided um, as gaslighting whenever clinicians suggest that symptoms might be caused by the psyche. In reality, that's not what gaslighting is. You can accept that symptoms are often caused by the psyche, you can accept that's possible in your own case and still be concerned about gaslighting. Gaslighting is a problem of credibility. Gaslighting occurs when a clinician doubts a, a patient's credibility to an extent that's not reasonable or acceptable. 
So it's a it's a battle about authority. It's a battle about epistemic injustice. It's sometimes called in philosophy where clinicians say, I know you're reporting that you have a bodily experience. I'm telling you, you're mistaken. Your experience is not bodily. So if I could just jump in, uh, just a couple of things. First of all, let us just make very clear at the outset that there is unquestionably terribly misogynistic history in medicine and that 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 continues to the present day in many ways and that this is that, that I am not disputing that nor am I someone who simply takes the side of clinicians in any way I think I I'm happy to harshly criticize my profession in past and in present okay I just want to put that out there I, I think what we're talking about here is, is two things number one I don't agree again with this notion of 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 saying that something is bodily or not now I have no doubt that there are physicians that that speak you know, terribly to the patients and that, and that maybe say, no, you are not, you do not have anything bodily wrong with you or take these approaches that I disagree with. Okay. But the question is, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about etiology and treatment. I can totally agree with you that physicians should not take this authoritarian perspective ever of saying there's nothing bodily wrong with you. At the same time, as physicians should, should disagree on questions of etiology and definitely treatment. And we've seen this with other sort of contentious diseases, um, things like chronic Lyme disease. But regardless, and, and, and the reason why it matters isn't so much a philosophical question of does pa this patient have um, something wrong with them or not. It's because a presumption of a particular etiology leads to treatments that may actually be harmful. Um, you know, year-long courses of IV antibiotics, these things that are hawked oftentimes by highly uh, unethical practitioners. And so we need to really fine-tune the way we talk about this. This isn't about denying experience. It's not even about denying that something is bodily or not. It's about etiology. Um, and it's about treatment. And that's where you do need physicians to be willing to disagree, because if you don't need physicians to talk, to think about etiology or treatment, you don't need physicians at all, because then we could all diagnose ourselves and select the treatments that we need and pick them up from the pharmacy. And I'm not trying to sound snide. And I'm, I, I think that we probably see things many similar in a lot of ways, maybe outside this narrow one, um, politically and philosophically otherwise. But I think we need to sort of fine tune the way we're speaking about this. So, Adam, when you say what's important is understanding the etiology, parse that for listeners. Sure. I mean, for instance, let's go back to the a contentious, another contentious condition, which is um, what it gets referred to as chronic Lyme disease. Um, the, you know, I, there's no question that some people have persistent symptoms um, after a case of Lyme that's adequately treated. Um, but if you believe that those symptoms are produced by a persistent infection in the body, which is an etiological explanation, the etiology of those symptoms is persistent infection, is the Lyme infection, then that would lead one, A, that's important to know, but B, it would lead one to treat that in a particular way. Um, and a lot of, um, I think what Diane is, is you know, describing that, that led up to this, it does um, go back to some of those other um, illnesses like like chronic Lyme. And I think that that goes to show how, you know, e etiology cause does matter. And even if as a doctor, you don't know the etiology, it, sometimes you think it's not one etiology. And it's important to say that because that could guide a patient into the correct treatment or at least avoid harmful ones. Diane, I can hear you shaking your head here. <laughs> yeah, it's loud, the shaking. Um I just want to suggest that you're saying opposing things. 
you're saying on one hand, and this is what philosophers can offer, right? So we're in a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty. So what we need is careful reasoning about how to deal with the uncertainty, right? The science isn't going to resolve this. So what I am hearing from you are two different and incompatible ideas. Uh, one of them is that you should not and cannot draw a clear line between uh, states of disease and states where psychological distress is causing an experience in in of the body when disease isn't present, right? You're saying on one hand, no, it's a mistake to imagine that we can draw a clear line there and we all have to be more sensitive to how they're unified. At the same time, you're um, insisting that clinicians need to be very careful about the etiological question. And uh, what you mean by that is to very carefully notice when patients are not suffering from disease and when they're instead suffering from psychosomatic problems. So if we accepted your idea that we should never draw a clear line there, we would have no field of psychosomatic medicine. There would be no diagnosis of somatization. There would be no um, effort to say, well, no, you need psychosocial support. Uh, you need a prescription, right? In medicine, there is no question that clinicians draw a clear diagnostic line between patients who suffer from disease and patients who have psychological problems that make them amplify or exaggerate bodily experiences that are benign, right? There's no question that clinicians draw that line. I think it would help to just stop saying there is no line there because clearly medicine works with a line there. <laughs> I, I, I think the point, okay, do, do be clarify. I'm, say, I'm not saying that there is no such thing as a purely psychosomatic symptom, right? That happens sometimes. But I think what's far more common is the intermingling of the two, that I have asthma and I also have something else. And these things intermingle to produce symptoms. Um, there's also just, mis there's a totally separate category, which is simply misattribution of symptoms to a particular etiology. I do have, um, you know, particular symptom X, all the time. And I come to believe it's associated with exposure Y because it seems to. But the reality is both doctors and uh, and patients, all of us, um, can often misattribute um, symptoms to etiology. The thing is that um, it's really important to recognize that there's a, a very different scientific status to a doctor's conclusion that you have, this is a spine problem or a kidney problem, right? You have back pain, Either it's caused by a spinal problem or a kidney problem, let's say. I'm not a doctor, but uh, that distinction is important. And a doctor can use objective scientific evidence to draw, to clarify the etiology in a case of that kind. In a case of this kind, the question of whether the experience is bodily or psychological is not, that evidence for that is not accessible to the clinician. You can't do any tests to make that determination. So, your scientific status of that kind of conclusion is very weak. It, clinicians don't seem to recognize that, um, you know, because you don't have a test you can do. What you're doing is making um, a, a speculation about the nature of the patient's experience. The patient, patient thinks it's a bodily experience, but really it's a psychological experience. You might be right. But even if you're right, the status of your evidence for that is never going to meet the status of your evidence for a, a biological problem. So let me take it from the philosophical and the medical to the personal. Say I'm somebody, I'm 
I had a kind of a mild case of COVID-19. I'm getting better, but I feel completely lousy. You know, I, and I have some of the classic things. I'm just so tired. I can't think straight. What do I do? I, I know there are some medical centers that have opened up like long COVID treatment clinics. Are those, you know, a right thing to do? How do, how do I, as a person, how do I parse how I'm feeling? I think at this point, um, the most, one of the most difficult aspects, I mean, obviously the most difficult aspect for a patient with long COVID is, you know, struggling with this suffering and disability. Um, compounding that is this discourse that leads them to second guess their experience and uh, leads them to, um, I mean, my, what I find talking to patients is that that element is, is an additional kind of trauma, makes them mistrust the profession and makes them wary about going to doctors. And um, I think that's a really big concern. So I don't know the answer to the question. There isn't a medical treatment. There's no drug that's been approved for the symptoms of long COVID. Um, there are people working on this. There will be trials at some point, no doubt. There will be a lot of science that comes out to better elucidate, you know, why some people have those symptoms and others don't. Um, I think, though, that if you think of this as more what I said, the aftermath of a, of a car accident, um, then I think that probably means that most likely the kinds of treatments that will be beneficial to such an individual will be rehabilitation, physical rehabilitation, um, and maybe in some individuals, psychological support will be useful just because of the fact that these things are so inter intertwined and because we can't neatly separate them. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there will be some discovery that there is you know, let's hope not, you know, chronic infection of the brain by this virus. There's no evidence of that, but that has been posited. Um, but I think that's unlikely. I think this is going to be more like how you would deal with the recovery from a car accident that left you not the same way as you were before. Um, and that's, you know, remains to be, to be seen, I suppose. I find that uh, response kind of concerning because it seems to recommend to clinicians there is so little evidence for disease in these patients that it's wise to just take a psychological approach. And neither of those things are true. First of all, I said in some individuals that may be useful, and then I said therapy and rehabilitation may be useful. That is not a psychological treatment. We have patients with end-stage lung disease, you know, with COPD who benefit from uh, from rehabilitative care and from physical therapy. So you don't need to assign a, a, a sort of category of, of mind-body for that to be a helpful a helpful intervention. Of course, clinicians should be very wary and should evaluate aggressively and thoroughly to make sure there is not, say, a blood clot that they've missed. Um, absolutely, okay? But assuming that investigation has occurred, that there's no underlying organ damage that can be addressed with a specific therapy, um, then the patient should be cared for and watched and, and monitored and their concerns evaluated. But there is no sort of generic long COVID treatment or drug. So I, I guess I don't understand what the practical implications of, the, of, of, of what you're saying. What I'm suggesting is that, um, as you say, uh, well, for one thing, clinicians can go ahead and do a bunch of tests and find nothing. And yet there still is a disease there that we don't yet understand, right? There are these two patients who've been 
communicating a lot on Twitter who were both dismissed with anxiety, they're long COVID patients. They had very, very persistent clinicians who ultimately found microclots that explained their symptoms. But it took extraordinary testing to discern that. So it's clear that in cases of long COVID, is a question of how much testing and whether testing that we currently have can find the kind of disease that could be present in long COVID. So we still end up with a state of uncertainty even when clinicians test and find nothing. And even once we're in that state of uncertainty, we still have work to do to go from that to therefore psychological explanations and management. Those are not the same. Uncertainty does not equate with a psychological explanation or a psychological approach. There's still steps there. And choosing a psychological explanation and approach is harmful when it's a mistake. It's harmful medically and it's harmful psychologically. Clinicians need to be extremely cautious about the difference between management as uncertainty and management as psychological problems. For the a recent First Opinion podcast that we did on the really horrific epidemics of the U.S. Civil War, doing that podcast nudged me to look into the history of this a little bit. And I learned that after the 1919, sorry, the 1918 um, influenza epidemic, th there were people describing the same sorts of things that we're hearing now debilitating lethargy, loss of muscular energy, nervous complications, sleeplessness. There was a spike in suicide deaths. And then there was a wave of sleeping sickness worldwide that killed an estimated 500,000 people between 1919 and 1928. Um, similar things people are learning about the aftermath of H1N1. But what was interesting is after the influenza pandemic, there was silence. No research, nobody was talking about the aftermath of the pandemic until the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that the same thing's not going to happen with COVID-19 and that it will be grist for all sorts of research um, going forward. Where do you guys, where do you two see things moving forward in this particular area of long COVID? Um, well, I, I certainly don't. I, I think it is getting a, 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 a deserve deservedly a lot of evaluation. There's, you know, the NIH is going to be spending um, rightfully a lot of money to to do research on the long term effects of COVID. Um, I think, as you said, there are a lot of centers um, that are focusing on this now of the of the treatment of these patients. Um, so I, I I hope that yes, this does get all of the attention it deserves. And to be quite honest, I do think there's going to be a very long and big aftermath of medical needs, multifactorial, that come out of this pandemic. Um, and one of the clarifying thing, you know, in my piece, I do say there may be more than one factor operating in different patients um, that are virologic and psychosocial and they can interact. And that's, that's just reality. Um, my worry would be, though, that, you know, that one way we could do this wrong is to start using unvalidated um, therapies, start treating with um, uh, medicines or surgical procedures that lack strong evidence, um, that there could be mistakes made that ultimately would be to the detriment of this patient, this patient population. Um, and, you know, um, 
Tests are also can have harms if not used judiciously and wisely. Um, I don't think as a nation we underuse um, uh, medical testing out overall, although people who are uninsured and underinsured get left out unquestionably. Diane, where do you think things are headed? It was really interesting to hear that about the about the earlier uh, similar problems earlier in history and how uh, we paid very little attention to them. Of course, you know, this is the area that I work in. So uh, I'm very excited to see this research happening and to see this debate becoming a, an open public issue. I, I think people don't realize how large a portion of medicine is is about undiagnosed patients. You know, a very, very large portion, anywhere from maybe a quarter to a half of patients in outpatient care are not diagnosed. They say, I have symptoms and you investigate, you know, find an explanation we don't have scientific um, standards for how to cope with these cases. Right now, it's kind of random, kind of up in the air. And this kind of research will help to um, improve that area of medicine. We'll bring it out for public debate and hopefully resolve this tension about gaslighting and women's health and you know gender health equity, these kinds of things. I think we'll all benefit from from this kind of research. That's my hope anyway. Well, given the interest in long COVID and efforts to understand it by the NIH and others, my guess is that we could have a completely different conversation on this in just a few months. Until then, I hope you both continue to explore this problem and reveal new truths about it. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. No relation to Adam Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>